Uh, I get to read Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. Uh, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Thank you, Raj. Good morning. For those of you new, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to have you guys with us, or, or for those watching online. And uh, thank you, Raj, for sharing. He's like, James, why do I got to read this scripture? Um, <laughs> we'll see. It's actually an incredible passage, as we'll see today. All right, let's jump in. So, there, is a, uh, there was a sign in a college campus that uh, had large letters up on it on a college campus that said sex in giant letters on this big white sign amongst all the other signs. And as you walked up closer to it, you saw in small letters right below it, it said, now that I've got your attention, how about joining the college rowing club? Um, right? Just a great form of advertising. In the midst of so many different messages that are out there, they knew what it took to be able to get people's attention. We, we live in a sex-obsessed culture, and one that is only seems to be growing in obsession all the time. And so in today's passage, Paul directly addresses that culture of that's completely saturated with sensuality and immorality and perversion and beyond anything that we actually deal with today in our culture. And it's so relevant for us because if this is a message that was meant for the church of Ephesus in their far more broken state, it can be even more relevant for us today in 2023. And so today, we're going to look at that first half of that big chunk, of, or a small chunk of that section of, of chapter 5, this kind of intense passage, and see what Paul is saying there. Now remember, for those just joining us, we've been in a series for a few months now on Ephesians, and we're going passage by passage, and that's why we're here today. The joy of going expositionally through a text is you don't get to pick and choose your verses. It's already picked for you. We just go through the text and address it all. And the first few chapters of Ephesians is all about who we are in Christ. When we accept Christ, what has Christ done for us? And we looked at that for a few months, that we are now in Christ. We are loved by him. We are saved by his grace, not our works. We are a new creation. We are no longer that old self, but now this is what Christ has done. He has saved us, and we've given us this inheritance. And then chapters 4 through 6, we're now, what, is, what happens now? How do we now live now that we are in Christ as a new creation? What does it mean now to be seated in Christ? How do we live this new life and put on this new self that he has called us to, to live by his grace and as his new creation? And all through this letter, Paul is specifically contrasting the old life to the new life. In chapter 2, he said, you were dead deserving of wrath, but now you are alive, so walk like me. In chapter 4, he says, put off that old self, that life, that Gentile life of those old dead ways of living and put on the new life. Live out your identity in Christ. So over and over and over again, Paul is telling this young Ephesian church that's coming out of incredible sin, incredible debauchery, and demonic idolatry is this young church. And he's saying Jesus is not something we add to our life. 
But Jesus now becomes our, gives us this whole new life. We are a new creation. That is who you were. This is now who you are. And so as we enter into today's first passage, uh, I just want to give a warning, and it's the same warning I gave about a month ago when we taught on putting off and putting on, and that is I'm breaking this passage that, that Raj read for us into two sections, into two parts. It's just too much to trying to fit into one. And so just like the warning from last time, this week we're talking much more about getting into the, the realities of zooming in into the sexual immorality and the greed and this other stuff that's not always fun to talk about, but I think you'll see it, it's a beautiful way to look at it, the way Paul says it. And then next week, we're talking about specifically the living in the light part. That's the, the hope part, the, the move forward part. And so if you're here today listening to this, even if you're not going to be here next week, please listen to next week's message. It's a two-parter. If you only get today's message, you've only got half of Paul's point. But I had to split it apart for time-wise. And so if you're watching online and you're only getting this one, please, please, please make sure you listen to next week's as well. Because without it, this, this week's can seem quite unbalanced because it's a two-parter. All right. Also, just a warning, we are going to be touching, talking about very openly today about things. We have little ears in the room about sex and about things related to that, because that's literally what the text is talking about. We can't avoid it as a body of Christ. All right. So last week, Paul opens up chapter five in this most beautiful of ways by saying that we are called to imitate Christ in his life of love. It says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul begins by emphasizing this insane love of God, this sacrificial love of God that he gave to us. And you kind of expect Paul to go from that passage into like one of his beautiful doxologies of how much God loves us and the overwhelming love of God that no one is beyond his grasp. But that's actually not what he does. He goes from the mountaintop of the incredible love and grace of God into verse 3, which says, But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place. But rather thanksgiving, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things wrath has come on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. We talk about whiplash, going from the mountaintop of God's incredible grace, like right into the gutters and the cesspool of sexual immorality and greed and, and incest and adultery and all this other nasty stuff. I mean, hasn't Paul already told us many times that we are a new creation? We are in Christ. We are a new body. Why does he go then and talk so much about the shameful things that we want to keep in the darkness? Well, it must be because those Ephesians were such terrible Christians. Right? Even after becoming Christians, it's obvious they still struggled with these terrible sexual sins and greed. And I mean, what must have been wrong with them? That they would struggle so much that they'd have to be addressed so directly. I mean, praise God, we don't struggle with the same things of sensuality and sexual immorality and coarse joking and inappropriate humor and selfish greediness. I mean, it's almost like people don't change throughout history. The same stuff 2,000 years later in a different continent. It's like he'd be writing the exact same words to us here in America in 2023. Paul writes about the things that many Christians live in shame of. That we want to hide in the darkness. Because that's where so many of those Ephesians were. And it's also where so many of us are today. And he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't pretend. Because he knows how serious this is. That we are now seated in Christ. We are a new creation, but we still live in this fallen world. And Paul calls us to walk worthy of our calling, as he said in 4.1. 
or last week in 5.1, imitate Jesus in the way he lives and loves. And that means we need to be honest with the way the world is pulling us. You know, so often many say about this upcoming generation that, I mean, I couldn't imagine living in such a world as those of Gen Z and below, where now it's going Gen A, the next generation down. It's gone back around the, the, the titles. And I can't imagine living up with, with the access to pornography and sexual morality and sensuality and all this stuff this generation experiences. That's true. It's, it's terrible. It's, it's far worse than anything in my generation. But it has nothing on the generation of the Ephesians. The Ephesians were growing up in a culture that was so much more sexualized than anything we could ever conceive of today. Comparison, it would be like all of us growing up in some sanitized Christian bubble. They were exposed to sexual immorality in terrible forms of debauchery at every corner, at every, every aspect of life. It was just common. And how they worshipped their gods, which was a normal part of life. I mean, orgies and, and sex were not taboo topics. They were celebrated in the temples. And from ancient writings, coarse joking and, and pornography, we can see is, was a normal thing at that time in drawings and pictures. Adultery, polygamy, homosexuality, incest, cross-dressing, cross -dressing, bisexuality were all very common at the time of this writing. The famous statesman, the, the Greek order, Dos, um, Demosthenes, was famous for writing this. He said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and be faithful guardians of our household. I mean, how sick is that? But that's the prevailing culture at the time. I mean, it's messed up. Even the Roman emperors were blatantly, the top leaders of the world, blatantly engaged in this, not in private, but in public, with unapologetic perversity on full display of the entire empire. Nero, who is the emperor likely when this letter is written, just a, just a little short boat trip away from the city of Ephesus, Nero was married many times. And during one of those marriages, he, during one of the wedding ceremonies, he rode, wore the bridal veil and considered himself the wife in that marriage. The Roman emperor... He committed incest multiple times with his own mother. It was known. It was widespread. At one point, he castrated his own male slave, married him, and then treated him as a wife and called him his wife. I mean, this is sick perversity on a level that we cannot possibly even understand. And this is just the beginnings of it. I'm not sharing the really messed up stuff because it would even violate what Paul's talking about in this very letter. We can't get our minds in the gutter that far. The sexual immorality and the language of the first century Roman Empire would make any stand-up, raunchy comedian of today just blush and not be able to repeat it. It was too scandalous for our media of today. So what Paul is saying is incredibly relevant to us today. If it's true for the Ephesians, it's definitely true for us. So Paul is going to address these areas of speech, of sexuality and speech, and actions, and, and greed, and he's going to give them all equal weight, and so we're going to look at that today. But sexual immorality is a really tumultuous topic for us today. Something that many of us, especially of my generation, were brought up with, with very kind of repressive teachings on sex. The topic for some may bring shame and embarrassment as some parents and teachers made us feel dirty or, or bad for talking about sex or see sex as kind of this evil, hidden thing. And purity culture, which was right when I was growing up, had some value. But it also destroyed so many people in their understanding of God and sex from my generation. I'll never forget the rose illustration. I don't know if you guys ever saw this one, but where a, a well-intentioned youth pastor would pass a rose, a, a fresh rose around to a group of students. And by the time it gets to the end, he tells them to touch it. By the end, there's almost no petals left. It's just wilting. It's dying. And he, at the end, he holds the rose up and he says, this is what it's like for those of you who are promiscuous, right? You take this beautiful gift that God has given you and it's nothing less than it can't be recovered. I mean, it's, I honestly, that kind of teaching is downright evil. 
far worse than the evil it's trying to decry of all the other stuff. It just totally misrepresents who Jesus is. And yet that was common for so long of this twisted view of sex. And so many today still live in, as Christians, live in sexual dysfunction, even within marriages, because of twisted teachings by the church in many regards even. When people begin to realize kind of how off-center those teachings were, oftentimes we kind of follow that pendulum and we go from one side of repression to the other side of thinking, well, I guess we're just free in Christ so anything goes. And we take our freedom in Christ. And for many Christians today, it's now just become kind of bondage and sexuality has become an, idolatry, an idol for us today, whether we're married or not. It's gotten to such a crazy point in our society that we, now, we use sexuality as one of the primary ways to define our identity. I mean, so many in our society today want to be defined by who they're sexually attracted to. I mean, Paul is truly right when he says sexuality has become an idol in our culture of today. And so he directly addresses this. So let's jump in. He begins in verse 3 and says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. I mean, he starts strong and he says, There should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. The literal translation here is, it should not be named among you. Meaning it shouldn't ever be, it's not that it's never said the word, but it, it shouldn't exist. There should be none of this in your midst. The word for sexual immorality, he uses the word pornea, which is the word we get pornography from. And it's often translated as the word fornication, which just means sex outside of marriage. But it's far more encompassing than that in the original understanding. It's not just adultery or pornography, but it's any sexual activity outside of a loving sexual activity within a marriage. That's what it's referring to. And I emphasize loving activity within a marriage context because there are so many marriages that are engaging in sexual activity that is not loving, is not otherly, it is not caring for one another or honoring to God. So it has to be loving and honoring to God and one another. And just to make sure that no one misunderstood him, Paul doubles down and says not just sexual morality, but we must not have any name of impurity, of any kind of impurity as well. In fact, he doesn't even define what sexual impurity is. He says in verse 10, he's very clear, and he says, learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Right, so this is something they are supposed to discern what those areas of impurity are. And that includes what married couples do in private. Because the reality is God loves sex. He's the one that created it. Right? God is not a killjoy. He's not a prude. But we've perverted it in so many ways. And the pornification of our culture has caused even married couples to often pursue such degrading things that have no place in loving relationships. So as Christians, we must be honest about where we are living in immorality. That's what the text is saying. And then we must repent. We must put off the old and put on the new, just as we've been talking about. We cannot allow pornography and a porn culture to define our understanding of sex, whether we're single or married. Again, God is not a prude, and neither are we supposed to be as Christians. But one of the greatest dangers of the prevalence of pornography today is the twisting the idea of sex in such a sick way. God intended it for to be this loving, mutual, and self-giving within a committed marriage to glorify Him and, and bring joy and life to one another. Instead today, Sex is so frequently twisted primarily towards self-gratification. Because of pornography, men and women are being fed a steady diet of sex that, that, that really centers around being casual with no, no consequences, of degrading acts and violence, and increasingly incest is, is one of the growing topics of all pornography today, and fetishizing of young girls' bodies and Asian women and without intimacy or connection. It's just self-gratification whenever, wherever, with whoever I want at any time. 
And it all revolves around my self-gratification. And it's no surprise that the more it's pursued, the more emptiness it brings. It, the chase never ends. It's this insatiable hunger for it. And so therefore, it's no surprise that Paul links sexual immorality and greed directly together. And that would include greed for sex. But it's so much more than that. The word greed there refers to an insatiable desire to acquire more and more and more, no matter what the object of desire is. And obviously, this includes the, the greed to, to, to get more sexual fulfillment in some way. I, mean, I can relate to that. I've told many, many times my own story of my struggles with that, from my abuse as a child to my struggles with pornography and lust all throughout my, my, my growing up, and even as a missionary on the field. But here, greed is, is much more than just sexual immorality. It's a greed for money. It's a greed for power. It's a greed for material things. And somehow in Christian circles today, for some reason, we can harp so much on the sexual sins. We can go so hard on those, talk so much about sex outside of marriage or engaging in homosexual acts or living with a boyfriend or girlfriend or sexting or pornography, and we can judge those or, or feel great shame for those in some way. But right here, greed is given equal weight as every kind of sexual immorality. Sometimes for Christians, greed can be the sin that we excuse or downplay. In fact, in some circles, it's even celebrated in certain ways. We can say, you know, I'm not greedy. I just like really having the newest of whatever it is all the time. I'm not greedy. I just worked hard for my money. And so why would I give it to people who didn't work as hard? I'm not greedy. I, I just think tithing is some Old Testament principle that's outdated, and I'll let other people do it. You know, a couple of verses, greed, Paul is going to say that greed is idolatry. Not like, he says it is idolatry. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, many of us might not recognize the power of the word idolatry to the original audience, but the readers of Ephesians sure did know how powerful this was. For a Jewish person, idolatry is what wiped out their entire nation. It was idolatry that got them taken away as slaves to Babylon. It wiped out almost the entirety of the nation of Israel because of idolatry. Only a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the Israelite people still existed after slavery because of the penalties for idolatry. They know how serious it is. There is nothing in the Old Testament God speaks about as strong or with greater anger or greater intensity than idolatry. He speaks about it countless times with far, far greater anger and intensity than he ever speaks about any degree of sexual immorality. The only thing that even comes close to raising God's anger to the degree of idolatry is oppression of the poor and injustice. Nothing else comes even close. So labeling greed as idolatry is very intense and very intentional. It's no small thing. It's a loaded term to the audience to show the seriousness of it. And yet if we're honest today, it's often something that we don't take nearly as seriously because we don't have it from God's perspective. So, where are we greedy in life today? If we're going to be honest with the text, we have to consider it. I mean, it, maybe it's an addiction to pornography or to erotic literature or to sex in some way. Maybe it's using hookup apps or Tinder or Grindr or something else that, that, we, that we do in secret. But it's not just sexual desire, it's also in work trying to earn as much as we can, even when it hurts others and, and pushes others out. You know, when I was in sales in college, I was working for AT&T, and 
I had to quit because essentially my job, I made the most money, not from selling phones, but selling bolt-ons or add-ons like insurance and text messaging packages and all the rest. And that's where the majority of my money was made. And so I got people to buy things they genuinely didn't need because I made more money with it. And I would come home just feeling dirty as my bosses were pushing me to sell more and more and more of all this stuff I knew they didn't want. It would just cost them money. And eventually I had to quit because I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't justify my behavior. I just felt dirty. And I realized my greed was eating away at me within my work. Or it's greed show its way. Maybe we have an insatiable desire to acquire more stuff. I mean, Apple has capitalized greed. Right? They're just greed is the essence of all their advertising of this insatiable desire. You want the new phone before you even know what it does. You want the new computer before it's ever released. What about taxes? Are we ever find our greed monster coming out in taxes and we say, oh, I don't need to claim that or claim that. That's just cash under the table. Or what broader in society with corporations? Many unwilling to pay an honest wage to people or Political greed for power. Anytime we can say the ends justify the means, we're walking in greed. Or the pharmaceutical industry is jacking up necessary medical devices and, and, and medication. Be honest with yourselves. Greed can sneak in in so many places. And I don't want to just be a, kind of a self-serving pastor and look internally, but what about generosity? I mean, you can't talk about greed without talking about that. Are we greedy with our finances? Saying, this is mine. It only belongs to me. I mean, God calls us to be generous. So are we generous to those around us? Or only when it seems easy and we have extra? Generosity is the antidote to greed. We must put off greed and put on generosity as a people. I'll show my story, and maybe I might regret this, but um, as a missionary, we were on the field for over 25 years. Sarah and I served. We only came here a couple years ago. But we were pretty well supported by this church and other churches and other people, and we always had more than enough. And, and we gave away a significant amount of our income. Way more than, than the 10% tithe or whatever. And in fact, we even set up a nonprofit so we could give easily and more freely and raise more money for people. We support all these missionaries and other people. And, and since moving in America, something radical happened. Not only did our, our income triple, which was awesome, but then the cost of living here is more than tripled, right? Far more than tripled what we had before in Africa. And so we really wrestled. I, not Sarah, I was the one. She's a better human than me. But I was the one who wrestled. Um, deeply as the numbers just didn't add up as we held our paycheck and looked at our expenses the numbers didn't add up and and here's i'm embarrassed to say this i mean genuinely embarrassed that i went to the lord and i said god how much do we have to tithe i want to be faithful according to your principles and i'm ashamed that i wrestled with this but i said lord is, is it pre-tax or after tax i mean lord let's let's talk about this how much do i really need to tithe does it include the additional gifts i'm given when i go and teach other places i mean what loopholes can i take advantage of what is that situation here i mean these are dumb questions but even as i say this i'm just like embarrassed to even say this out loud but that's where i was at the and the question do i have to is so stupid nowhere in scripture is this like a, a rule for us today it's a principle god gives us as something today that brings life that we participate in what god has given us and yet i was just so stupid on this one and obviously god never answered my stupid questions right this is a heart attitude that he wants me to have a heart of generosity for to give of those first fruits and the first fruits being that old testament concept where he tells us to give of our first fruits of the one-tenth of the he said it to them of you know your crops of your of your animals and literally the fruit that was grown take that and give it to those serving in the temple i mean it's this beautiful principle of this generous spirit that god is trying to raise within us but i was struggling when finances were tight and then finally, when I finally agreed, okay, I'll tithe off the top, I'll tithe off of gross, it's okay, Lord, I'm going to follow you. And then I'm like, whoa, wait, 
what about the missionaries we support? I'm like, oh, James, you suck. Like, and I was like, Do, can I take that out of my tithe? And I'm like, oh, James, just be generous. Stop white-knuckling your paycheck. Like, God provided it all. He'll provide your entire life. He's always taking care of you. But, I mean, I, I'm being honest. I wrestled with this deeply. Because God just said, James, you've always had more than enough. And I'm not an expert on this. But in this season, I'm honestly learning how to be generous all over again. It was a lot easier as a missionary when I never knew how much money was coming in. It was just all God's, all belonged to him. It's a lot harder when I know the paycheck to the very cent. And I start dividing it up. But generosity is the antidote to greed. We must put off greed and put on generosity. I mean, as Pastor Steve has been an incredible example to me of this. But not just Pastor Steve, this entire body. You guys have taught me so much, and I've been brought to tears so many times as this body has come around generously supporting the work that God is doing in one another, and it's just amazing. And I've been humbled and challenged, and, and I'm definitely growing in this. And not because I want to obey some antiquated law, but because this is the heart of Jesus. We are called to imitate him, to reflect him to the world, and greed in my heart destroys what he's doing. And it's why Paul puts it right in the mix with sexual immorality. It is no less. In fact, it eats away at who we are and prevents the light of God from shining through us. And greed even leads to the other. We can't actually live in love like Jesus with greed determining our actions. It's not possible. And almost every time there's an immoral failure, look right behind it and you'll see greed at work. You'll see greed unchecked leads to all kinds of selfishness and self-justification that we just cannot allow generosity is the way forward. Amen? But I'm probably just speaking to myself there, so we'll go back to things that maybe convict us a little bit less. I'm sure no one else struggles with that one. So, verse 4. Paul says, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So first he talks about sexual immorality and greed, and then he goes on to speak specifically about our language. Not only should we not be engaging in sexual immorality, he says, but we shouldn't be making light of it or joking about it either or tearing others down. If you read scripture, God actually has a great sense of humor. Many scriptures speak of the cheerful heart of God and of laughter. I mean, humor and joking is absolutely awesome. Well, except for puns. Puns are just cringe, and they have no place among God's saints, right? Amen? Is John Harris here this morning? Oh my goodness. John, I love you, brother. He's one of our elders, but he is a master of puns. It seems like he forever has like a database of puns ready to deliver in any circumstance. He's just holding on to one, waiting for someone to drop the punchline so he can hit the other side of it, right? But you need to know that the word for foolish joking here is actually the word we get our English word pun from. So that means that puns are forbidden. They are not of God. No, I'm joking. I just made that up. It's just what I wish was true. Um, I'll keep... I asked John if I could say that in advance, don't worry. But uh, I will keep rolling my eyes in our elder meetings regularly. Thanks, John. Um, even as I mentioned, I go, John, can I say this? He goes, yes, James, that will be great punishment. I'm like, oh, gosh. Um, oh, gosh. Paul is saying not to engage in sexual joking or joking that injures others. The literal translation seems to refer directly to double entendres, as the language he used says it's to turn a word, right? To turn a sexual meaning out of a regular word. They were, this isn't a new thing that we're doing. This is something back then they were doing. There's simply no place for that, Paul says, amongst Christians. We are called to build one another up, not conform to the ways of the world. We'll talk more about this next week, but this is a clear area where we need to hold one another accountable where we need to recognize that the language of the world can so easily seep into our hearts and into our lives. And verse 3 and 4 tend to be linked. 
The more we engage our eyes, our hearts, our bodies, and our minds in sexual immorality, the more it comes out of our mouths. It's just evidence of it. In fact, there was a story in the headlines just recently, really humiliating for the body of Christ, one of the senior leaders of one of the largest denominations in America. He put out a tweet, of course joking, that made lewd comments about a a politician's body. Incredibly inappropriate. And when they looked at it, they went and found he's made a lot of other similar lewd comments before, jokes. And when he was called on it, his immediate response was to defend and say, oh, I was just joking. Can't you take a joke? It was just locker room talk amongst guys. Eventually, enough people commented and they responded, I am not the man portrayed in that tweet. Now, but would anyone believe that? Scripture's pretty clear. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or in this case, out of the heart, the, the man tweets, right? But it comes right out of the heart. But notice what Paul says in this situation. He says, don't instead, he says, follow this pattern of put off and put on. And instead of sexual and damaging speech, what are we to do? Notice what he says here. He says, speak with thanksgiving instead. Put off this kind of speech and put on thanksgiving. I mean, who would have thought that the kind of the antidote to sexual speech is thanksgiving? Most people would think, I mean, that it would be something like purity of speech or holy speech or something on those lines. But Paul understands something, that he says that he understands the gratitude and thankfulness aren't just how we respond to what God has done for us, but thankfulness is what should motivate us to live the life he's called us to live. Our lives are to be like a thank you letter to Jesus for all that he has done for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to him. So thankfulness is actually what we put on when it comes to that kind of speech. Say, thank you, God, for what you have done. A greater life of of thankfulness and gratitude that motivates us to not live in the gutter, to not pursue those things. We must foster that habit and discipline as people. Paul puts it this way in chapter 2 of Colossians. He says, So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanksgiving. That's how we're to live. Lives of gratitude. We should be marked and saturated with gratitude as the people of God. Okay, now Paul's going to hit kind of the more intense passage here, the one that kind of makes some Christians freak out. He says in verse 5, For of this you can be sure, neither nor no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of such things, God's wrath has come on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, many Christians, especially those that come from broken sexual backgrounds or or legalistic environments, read something like this, they either run right past it or they just begin beating themselves and like whipping themselves over the back with this thing. So let's look at not just what Paul says, but specifically here, who he is speaking to. So in verse 5, he uses the exact same three categories he used back in verse 2. He says, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. But look, something very big changes here. No longer is this a specific sin he's referring to. Now Paul is referring to people who are defined by that sin. Their lives are characterized by this sin. I want to emphasize this. Don't miss this. Paul does not consider the people he's writing to to be in that category. He's already told them in chapter 1, your inheritance is in Christ. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He says, this is not who you are anymore, over and over. It is who you were when you were dead, when you were living the Gentile dead way of life. But that is not who you are. It is no longer who you are. You are now in Christ, a child of God. 
I'm going to paraphrase the great scholar Clinton Arnold here in his uh, Zondervan Exegetical Commentary. He says, this is not a warning for his audience that they will lose their inheritance. Hear this, church. Instead, it's the exact opposite. They should know that they have an inheritance in Christ, therefore they must live their new life in Christ. Dr. Arnold says, this is not a warning to the Ephesian Christians, but an affirmation to the Ephesians of their identity in Christ. This is not a reference to Christians who struggle with sin. This is for those whose lives are consumed by it, who are defined by it, and are unrepentant of it. Many Christians seem to forget everything they know about God and about salvation when they come to passages like this and move immediately to self-condemnation and fear and judgment. But Paul has made it abundantly clear in this letter, we are saved by God's grace, not our works, by his righteousness, not by ours. Our inheritance comes from grace, not by our lack of sin. Amen? He is clear, so clear. But he's also clear in this that this cannot be the way of life for Christians. And Paul doesn't let off the gas either. He just keeps pressing in. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Paul says, don't be deceived by anyone who tries to tell you that these things don't matter and have no consequence. Anyone tries to say, you know, I'm not hurting anyone. It's just my own life. Anyone says, God won't judge people for something, and he's too good. Paul says, do not be deceived by those voices. God takes this seriously. Clearly, people were going around saying, you know, lighten up. Don't be such a prude. God doesn't really care about this stuff. Life is short. Just have fun. If it feels good, do it. And Paul says, no. There are eternal consequences for this. Take this seriously. Remember, for Paul, this isn't just about moral behavior and personal righteousness. As we saw last week, this is about imitating Jesus as his children actually living and loving like him, being a light to the world, as we'll talk about next week. You know, last week we looked at the letter to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, where Jesus says it's better for the church not to exist than only to have doctrine if they aren't actually living and loving like God, like Jesus. So they aren't actually loving God and loving one another because we as his followers are his ambassadors, his light to the world. We don't have the privilege as Christians of not taking this seriously. We are called by God to imitate him, to be set apart from the world. I mean, Paul already told them back in chapter 2, he says this, all of us, this is Ephesians chapter 2, all of us, he's speaking to the Christian Ephesians, all of us lived among them, that's those in darkness, those, the greedy, the immoral, the impure, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, We were by nature deserving of wrath. Again, that's who they were. Hear that, church. That's who they were. It's who we were. But, here it is, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. When we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So he says, been clear, this is not who you are. You are not greedy and immoral and impure. That is not who you are. You may fall into it sometimes, but it's not who you are. Live out your identity of Christ. This is not a judgment upon Christians. And it shouldn't provoke fear, but gratitude and thanksgiving. Saying, thank you, Jesus. I am no longer the sexually immoral, the impure, and the greedy. I may wrestle with it sometimes and fall, but that is not my identity any longer. I am a child of God. I am in you, Lord Jesus. And therefore, I live my life in gratitude as a thank you letter to Jesus. He says this in 1 Corinthians. 
Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Say those two things fast. Nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Same thing he just said here in Ephesians. And here is 11. And that is what some of you were. But, here it is, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It's the same message. That is who you were. That is not your identity any longer. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of Jesus. It is no longer who you are. Paul is saying live out your identity in Christ. Be grateful for all that he has done. That is not who you are. Instead, imitate your Father. Imitate Jesus. We can take the love that He's given us and walk in love just like Him by the power of the Spirit. Amen? This is what we are called to do. Though, again, hear the warning. If you are not walking with Jesus, Paul does not pull punches in this text. Jesus says He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father and eternal life apart from Him. And if you're living a life that's defined by the things Paul describes, you're in a very dangerous place. So next week, we're going to be looking at the life Paul calls us to, to live in the light. But today, we need to talk about application. What does this mean for us? It's not always fun to dig into the gutters and to talk about these things. And I want to do it with gentleness because Jesus is gentle. But be sincere with the passage, not out of shame, but just out of alignment to God. The people Paul is addressing in this passage are people who have accepted Jesus' free gift of grace. They've welcomed Jesus into their life. They've experiencing his life. Therefore, the major warnings do not apply to them. This isn't about salvation. This is a message not about judgment and wrath for the church, but about alignment, becoming more like Jesus. And it directly follows Paul's call to imitate God and to walk worthy of our calling. So if we actually want to live in love like Jesus, as you've been talking about, it's more than just forgiveness and serving the poor and, and loving our neighbors. We are called to actually be conformed to be like Christ. And that means we must take Paul seriously and what he says about sexual immorality, sexual speech, and greed and idolatry in our hearts. And Paul emphasizes, don't let anyone deceive you. God is not joking about these things. We must take them seriously. So application for today. Are we engaging in inappropriate sexual relationships? Just be honest with the Lord. He knows you can't lie to Him. Are we choosing to follow the world's definition of what, sexual, what is sexually healthy over God's definition? Are we involved in sexual, sexual activity outside of marriage? If so, take it to the Lord. He's not going to beat you up, but He wants you to experience life. His ways bring life. He wants to show a better way. It's not about shame. It's about experiencing life the way God created us to experience it. And if you're in that place and you don't know what to do first, repent. Even if you've done it a hundred times before, repent. And don't just put it off like we talked about before, but seek the Holy Spirit for what you need to put on in its place to fill that space. In most cases, when we're walking in immorality, it's because we're not experiencing actual life of our times with Jesus. In which case, one of the best things to put on is regular time with Jesus. And not just reading as much scripture as you possibly can, but actual time talking to him as well and listening to him and meditating upon scripture. Paul says in Galatians that when you feed the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We must put on a life in the spirit of pursuing him and spending time with him. 
Or if you're struggling with that, it may mean that you're filling your mind with so much sexual imagery and so much brokenness through pornography and social media and TikTok and the language of friends that it's just always there in your mind. In which case, you need to be very careful about what is inputted into your head. Or if you're married, it's often the case that your marriage is having trouble, struggles and trouble. And there's a lack of intimacy and connection and joy in your marriage. In which case, get help. Make it a top priority. Do not, if you are married, do not allow for a broken marriage to be something that becomes normal for you. Do not allow for strife and anger and frustration in marriage to fester. It will lead to brokenness and cause great and severe pain. If there is not a freedom of love and honor and easy communication in your marriage, you are in extremely dangerous territory of falling into all these other things. And if that's the case, please, please go speak to somebody. Get marriage help. Sarah and I, we do a monthly marriage conference with our, our, our marriage counselor back in South Africa. We still meet with today every single month. We'll do it for the rest of our lives because we just want to make sure that no small thing ever becomes a big thing. There has to be, our marriage has to always have freedom and joy and love and mutual care for one another as just a reality as well as intimacy. Otherwise, these other things start becoming so real and so much pain. And that's Paul's first point. The next one he says, not just sexual immorality, but are you finding yourself participating in inappropriate joking? Sexualizing others or tearing others down. Humor that breaks other people down especially on the job site or something else, what we call locker room talk. There's, there's, you know, the locker room is not a place where we get to like say we're no longer followers of Christ. The job site isn't a place, and the office isn't a place where we can say, well, I'm just going to take off my, 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 old, my new self, put back on the old self in this environment. In fact, even more so in those places, we have to obey what Christ has called us to do and become the people he's called us to be. And if we're not good with our speech, we have to, it's likely coming from an over-familiarizing with the culture around us adopting and conforming to the culture around us, where our minds are in the gutter. Listen to Paul. Instead, grow in gratitude and thankfulness in your speech and in your heart. We are called to be set apart as Christians. This is not something as Christians we can engage in. We, we must hold one another accountable with gentleness. We can't laugh at sex jokes or, or participate in them, but gently, without judgment, especially if they're fellow believers, encourage them that it's not appropriate. We must build one another up. You know, another example of things I'm embarrassed by, I have a whole lot of them in my life. It was just a few years ago in this area, I was, friends of mine, fellow missionaries, um, brought out a game for us to play, and I'm embarrassed to say it was Cards Against Humanity. Uh, some of you may have played it before, and if you haven't, don't. Um, I was uncomfortable as we looked at some of the cards, and we pulled out some of the worst, most sexual, hardest jokes of all, and, and I felt this pressure. I, I didn't want to play, but I felt like I wanted to be relevant. I didn't want to be uncool. I wanted to seem like I don't know, I didn't want to seem like this self-righteous guy that some people might think I am as a leader there. And, and I felt uncomfortable playing. And as we began to play, the questions got more and more dirty and disgusting, of course. And the name of the game truly was so appropriate. I literally felt like my humanity was just being eaten away. And with everything, every joke, every laugh, I just felt like I can't do this till finally I just said, I'm sorry, I can't keep playing this. This is just eating away at my soul. I was just embarrassed and ashamed. Like, this is not okay. This is not okay to do this. I felt like I was engaging in darkness, which is interesting because next week, the first verse we're looking at is looking at darkness because that's what it calls this, darkness. We must live in the light. We must put away the old self and put on the new. That's the second one. The third one is greed. The sin that we as Christians so often just turn a blind eye to. We justify it. We, we judge others for their sexual sins or even ourselves. Even though Paul literally puts this right next to sexual sin, even more significant because this is the only one he calls idolatry. 
The truth is, as a body, I have to say this again, Northview, this has been one of our greatest strengths. And I've been blown away by the generosity of Northview. It continues to blow me away and humble me and have been brought to tears many times. But that doesn't mean it just gives us a pass and thinking, as a body, we're great, so therefore I'm good. We have to look individually and personally at this because it's not just how much do we give to the church or even to one another. I beg of you today, do not allow greed to take root in your heart. And if it's there, do what you have to to get rid of it. If you struggle to be generous with others, break the selfishness with extra generosity until it hurts. Get that until that greed monster just gets beaten down and has no breath left in it. I'm not just trying to self-servingly say give more to the church. That's not the point of this message. Give where God is telling you to give. Give not just of your finances, but of your time and your talent and your treasure, but put off greed and put on generosity. A dear mentor of mine, Dr. Ron Smith, once gave me one of the best ways to deal with a greedy heart and how to put off greed and on generosity. And he said, whenever there's a, a financial request that's been given, like a tithe offering or a missionary offering or maybe a, a single mother who needs help or a family that's hurting. He says, I asked the Lord how much I should give and whatever that is, I just try and give whatever that amount is. And he goes, if my greed monster rises up and says, no, 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 don't do that. We need that for lunch or something else. He says, I raise it 20%. If my greed monster starts freaking out again and doesn't immediately give in, I raise it another 20 and then another 20 and then another 20 until finally the greed monster says, I give up, I give up. And I give the full amount. And he goes, you know what happens? The greed monster just shuts up. I'm just able to give and be more and more generous. We must be a generous people. Recently, I've been practicing that one, the area I've been struggling recently. I've been doing good in those is the area of tipping, specifically in areas that seems like you shouldn't be tipping anymore, but everyone's asking for it. I mean, it's gonna, it's, I'm not going to be surprised if the Safeway self-checkout aisle computers start asking for a tip for their service at the end of these things. I mean, it's, everyone's doing it, but I'm saying, no, 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 don't respond in greed. Just be generous, James. And yes, if Northview is your home, this also does include giving to this community. If you have the practice of coming to this church and it's home, and yet it's not a practice to give of our first fruits to this community, I would encourage you, take that to the Lord. There's likely some greed hiding behind that. What Paul is saying here is so much more than finances. It's a life of generosity. It's rooting out greed in our hearts, and finances is just one of the largest areas where it raises its ugly head. So, now I heard someone once say, but I've never met an angry, generous person. Right? It just does something to our hearts. Let's pray as we finish. Father, we just thank you, Jesus, that you work in our heart. You want us to become more like you. You've given us life. You brought us from death to life so we can enjoy a relationship with you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, wherever necessary, Lord, may you move in our hearts. If you highlight any of sexual morality or sexual speech or hurting others with our language and jokes or greed, Lord, right now, may you move within our hearts, Holy Spirit. May you resonate with that within us, and, and may you lead us towards repentance. It's your kindness that leads to repentance. And may we live lives of gratitude and say, I want nothing to do with these deeds of darkness. And, Lord, may we repent May we turn to you and may we walk in the opposite way. Put off greed and put on generosity. Put off sexual speech and put on thanksgiving. Put off immorality and choose the ways of being with you and choose the ways of the Spirit, Father. Move within our hearts, God. May we be a people who increasingly live in love like you in all ways, in all manners of life. May we move towards a people of radical generosity, Lord Jesus. Move in our hearts today, Father. May we be so grateful 
so filled with a heart of just gratitude for you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And, and one more thing before we go to worship. If you're here or listening online and you do not yet believe in Jesus, you've not given your life to him, please heed Paul's warnings in this passage. If you're living a life of immorality and selfishness and saying to yourself, I'm not hurting anyone. God's not going to actually judge me. Scripture is abundantly clear. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. There is no hope outside of him. Then there's no better day than today to say, Jesus, I want to give my life to you. I'm tired of this emptiness, of this life I keep living, of this greed monster filling my life that's just leading me towards an empty life that just is this insatiable desire to keep acquiring and acquiring or pursuing things that only breathe nothing in return. Jesus, I just want to give my life to you. And if that's you, turn your life today to Jesus. Just say, Jesus, I need you and I want you. If you're here today and you want to do that, come forward during worship. Come talk to us afterwards or message us. You're online. Message us. We'd love to talk to you. I'd love to meet with you and pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we just thank you. We deserve death brought us from death to life. You gave your life for us so we could experience life in you, Jesus. And that's our longing, to experience more of your life. And you know that, and so you put upon our hearts to strip away those things that take away from that. And so Jesus, that pruning, as John talks about in John chapter 15, of the pruning of the branches, gently, Lord, prune away those areas of our lives that are preventing us from experiencing your life the way you created us for preventing us from the light shining to the world the way you want it to, Lord. With your gentleness, the same gentleness that doesn't break bruised reeds and doesn't stomp out smoldering wicks. You help us move away and walk away from these areas of pain and brokenness. Thank you, Jesus, for the joy of serving you and knowing you. And we become a people with greater degrees of gratitude and thankfulness. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much coming here today. Hope to see you guys next week. Please, if you can't make it, listen online. I know this is a harder one next week. It's, a, it's far more, not fluffy and light, but that's not my style, but um, it's, a, it's, it's about light and life. So amen. See you guys next week. <laughs>